Okay, now if you have been at uh, St. Peter's Free Church for, for um, any length of time, I, I guess you know uh, how we roll uh, when it comes to our sermons or when it comes to our preaching. You know how we roll. You know what we tend to do is we tend to work in sequence in this church. We work sequentially uh, through books of the Bible. We don't always do that, uh, but most of the time that's the case. So we'll take a book of the Bible and we will tend to work section by section and section by section through, through the book. Well, because of that, let me tell you that baptism services scare the life out of me. Uh, because, okay, we uh, believe firmly that all Scripture is God-breathed. So we believe that, absolutely, we believe that. At the same time, it's kind of obvious that some sections of the Bible are more appropriate uh, for particular occasions than others. So a couple of weeks before a baptism service, you will find me in my office, and you will find me in there stressing out, and you'll find me looking ahead in Scripture and wondering, see when that baptism service comes around, where will we be in the Bible? You know, we're going to have visitors, we're going to have guests in the church. We don't want to be looking at uh, financial giving, because we'll, <laughs> we'll appear like we're charlatans. Uh, we don't want to be looking at some of the Old Testament food laws, because we will seem rather strange. So you'll find me stressing out, well, when I realized what we were going to be looking at today for Mirren's baptism service, I was not just relieved, I was truly overjoyed. Let me tell you why. Right at the heart of Christianity, we believe that God has done something marvelous. We believe that God has sent his son to secure his people's salvation. He sent his son to live for us, to die, taking our punishment, to rise. It's a beautiful thing. But what else do we know? We know that that salvation that Christ has procured, it doesn't automatically come to all people who have ever lived. It doesn't, it's not just that Christ has secured salvation and suddenly all people who have ever lived suddenly inherit eternal life. So there's a really critical matter that has to be dealt with and it's this. How do we respond to Jesus? Like how is it that a person can appropriate this incredible blessing that Jesus has won. Like, what is the necessary response that God requires? How do we respond if we're going to receive this salvation Jesus has purchased? And so you can see, if that's a big issue, you can see why I was delighted this morning. Because actually, as we work through the book of Luke, it's that critical matter that we come to today and here at St. Peter's. I am praising God. Let me tell you, I'm thanking God for Pete and Natalie and their timing. Their timing is immaculate. Because this morning, we get to consider the critical necessary response to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you're a guest, if you're visiting uh, St. Peter's, uh, let me tell you what we tend to do for our sermons. What we try to do is we try to launch ourselves into the particular portion of Scripture that we're looking at. We try and get in there, and we try to have a look around in the text. And really, that's what we're going to do just now. We're going to launch ourselves into this portion of Scripture. And as we look around this morning, we need to, I think, observe three things. 
So in this sermon, we're just going to look at and observe three things that we see in this particular text. So if you've got a Bible, some of you have got a Bible, brilliant. If you do, turn to Luke chapter 7. If you don't have a copy of the Bible, it's not a problem at all. We'll try and project some of the texts and some of the verses on the screen behind me. So technology allowing, you'll be fine. Okay, so the first thing that we need to observe in this text and see is an example of love. So that's the first thing that we see. So we jump into this text, we look around, we see an example of love, an example of love. Okay. Um, What do you have planned uh, for your afternoon? What do you have planned for the hours ahead? I know some of you are going to a post baptism do uh, this afternoon. That sounds good. I know that that's for some of you. I know others of you have got planned a, a good long Sunday afternoon sleep. Not looking at anyone in particular, Hugh Henderson. <laughs> but regardless of our plan, the bottom line is this, that after the end of the sermon, after the service, you know, we'll get a cup of tea, a cup of coffee, chat, but most of us are going to disperse aren't we? And we're going to go our separate ways. That's what's going to happen inevitably at the end of this service. Now, as you and I jump straight into Luke chapter 7, like I think what we should appreciate is that that is what is happening here or has just happened here. Do you see what I mean? So over the last little while, Jesus has been preaching, okay? He's been preaching in a rural setting, preaching to a big crowd, But at this point here, what's just happened is Jesus has finished his sermon and a lot of the crowd, they'll have dispersed, gone their separate ways. And what you and I have done, actually, we have followed Jesus as he's changed setting. He's gone into a city and it's the city of Capernaum, which was on the northwest shore of Galilee. Now, the events that unfold here kind of revolve, don't they? around one particular chap, one particular bloke. So I want us just to try and bring this individual into view just now at St. Peter's. Now, what are we told about him? So we are told that this guy in view just now is a centurion, a centurion. Now, what does that tell us? Okay, that tells us a couple of things. So the guy in focus was a non-Jew, Okay, so this centurion was a a Gentile, most likely not, although he's a Roman centurion, most likely he's not originating from Rome, but from one of the provinces nearby. So he's, uh, he's a Gentile. The other thing that it tells us if he's a centurion is that this was quite an influential guy, wasn't he? Like, what do we know about centurions? We know that they were in charge of quite a large group of Roman soldiers, a hundred, maybe it's a little bit less than that, but it's there or thereabouts. You with me thus far? So he's an influential Gentile. There's a third thing, though, isn't there, that we know about this guy? He had an issue. He had a problem because we're told in the text that his slave or his servant, same word, really same idea, slave or servant, is sick. Now, if you cast your mind back, if you're part of St. Pete's and you've been here for a wee while, if you cast your mind back just a little bit of time, even just a few weeks, maybe you'll remember what we said about the author of this book. Do you remember we said that he was a medic? So Luke here, the author, is or was a doctor, 
And perhaps that goes a long way of explaining why he gives us a little bit more detail about the thickness, does it? Like if you read the other parallel account, so Matthew's gospel tells us this same story. Matthew doesn't bother with detail. Like oh, Matthew tells us that this servant, the slave was paralyzed and that's about all the information we get. But Luke, the doctor, the medic, he wants you to know more than that. Like he wants you to know that this servant was gravely ill. Did you pick up on that? He wants you to, to know that this, this, this guy's on his deathbed. This that we're dealing with here really is a matter of life or death. Now, I think personally, uh, critical to this whole account is the esteem with which this centurion holds his servant. Now, did you pick up on the language? Now, we're told in verse 2, I'll just read it for you. We're told that the slave, <laughs> the slave was highly valued uh, by the centurion. I wonder how you read that or how you understand that he's highly valued, the slave, servant's highly valued. I, uh, to be honest with you, I highly value my dishwasher. I highly value my washing machine. I highly value my car. These things tend to serve me well. Is that the sort of idea here? Absolutely not. Like, I think we can all appreciate the idea here is this slave was beloved by the centurion. You get that, don't you? I mean, this, this slave was dear to him. He was precious to him. He loved him. He loved him. And I, I think that explains this absolutely critical moment that occurs in the text. Because what does this all revolve around? What's the center moment? What does the centurion do for the slave? Please hear me on this. The centurion, out of love, he appeals to Jesus on his servant's behalf. Did everyone hear that? The centurion appeals to Jesus on his servant's behalf. You got it in the text. Like this Roman centurion, he gathers this delegation to his house, doesn't he? This group of people. And then he sends the delegation off to Jesus and there to appeal to Jesus. Please, Jesus, he's sick. He's dying. Please, please come and deal with this. Now, there's a, a lot of detail there. I'm sure you're still with me. We've jumped in, we've looked around, we've seen the centurion. What about you? Come on, what about us? Uh, St. Peter's. What do we do with this? What do we learn here? Well, what I would love for you to do is to pick up on something in the text that, to be honest with you, is not immediately obvious. Something in the text that's critical, really important, and not particularly obvious. So if we can do this, if we can put up, you can do this with me. If we look at verse 3 together, let's put it up on the screen. How about we look at verse 3? Now, have a look at that. Have a skim read of that. So the centurion sends his delegation to Jesus. And what exactly is it? If you look at the end of the verse here, what exactly are the delegation to ask Jesus to do? Do you see? They are to come and what? Heal. Yes? Come and heal. Now what is not immediately obvious, I think, to us, but what is infinitely important is that that word heal is from the same root word in the original language as you and I get the word salvation. So what you've got is this delegation going to Jesus on behalf of the servant 
sent by the centurion, and they literally are saying, come and save him. Come and save this man. Now, do you see what that, I was going to say, do you see what that entitles you and I to do? But actually, do you see what, that, what we're supposed to do here? As with every one of Jesus' earthly miracles, we are not just supposed to stand back here and be and marvel at Jesus' power. What we're supposed to do with a servant is recognize here a spiritual parallel. So I wonder if you would do this for a moment, Christian friends. I wonder if you would consider what the Bible has revealed to us. Christian friend, like this centurion, you and I in our lives Like with a servant, you and I have people in our lives who are sick. Christian friend, we have people in our lives who are spiritually sick. And these these are people who, outside of the healing work of Jesus, outside of the touch of Jesus, they are very seriously spiritually ill. Come with me, come on. What, what, What do we know? Like, what does the Bible call this spiritual disease, this spiritual illness? We know the Bible calls it sin. And it's that, like, it's that universal ailment, this universal disease afflicting every one of us. And it's this universal disease that, that leads to us, like, honestly, consistently and seriously breaking the law of God. Now, where does this sickness end? Well, first of all, it ends in physical death. Like, it's seemed destined for the servant, like the wages of sin. But you know what? Outside of a touch of Jesus, outside of his healing, it leads leads further. It leads to a a, a second spiritual death. This is is an an illness that that could not be more severe or serious, afflicting people in our lives. It is a matter of what? It's a matter of eternal life and eternal death. And so I wonder... If you see what God is giving us in this text, Christian friends, I think here with the centurion, God is handing us an example for you and I to to follow immediately. Because I I wonder, like, what would be the most loving thing that we could do for the people in our lives who who are spiritually sick? What would be the most loving thing to do? Is it not exactly what the centurion does? The most loving thing would be for us to appeal to Jesus on their behalf, isn't it? To regularly and sincerely cry out to Jesus, plead with Jesus, Jesus, for these people, come and, come and heal. Come, Jesus, come and save. And I'll, I'll go a little bit further because I'd love to bring this into Mirren's uh, situation for this little girl that we've just baptized to think about her for a second. I love uh, a really brief a comment, uh, an author, a scholar, a commentator, he makes on these verses. Now, this guy, he's thinking about the servant and his predicament and the centurion's action. Now, listen to what the author says. I love it. You will too. The author says of the servant, we see here with the centurion the great benefit of being part of a believing household. Isn't that great? The servant and the centurion acting on his behalf, we see the benefit, the blessing of being part of a believing household is lovely, but do we not rejoice just now that that is true also for Mirren? And think about what Pete and Natalie did in the questions that we asked them. Pete and Natalie stood up here and agreed 
that they would do exactly really what this centurion does here. That they've just professed that what they're going to do is to appeal to Jesus on behalf of a member of their household. And I'll be frank with you, I think we should join them. Like I, I would suggest that we follow suit. I would suggest as a church that we appeal to Jesus regularly for Mirren, that we pray to Jesus and pray for this little girl. So we see, first of all, an example of love as we look around. What does the centurion do? He appeals to Jesus for his uh, sick servant. That's the first thing. Second thing we see, as we look around in Capernaum, we see or hear maybe an expression of unworthiness. An expression of unworthiness. And um, here what we do is we come to that critical matter that we signaled at the very start of the sermon. Can you remember what we thought about at the start? We said that in this portion of Scripture, we'd find something of the basis upon which Christ blesses or the necessary response to God for salvation. So we see that here. Yes, we do. But how we are to recognize this is a little bit unusual, if I'm honest with you. Because you know what we're supposed to do at this point? You and I are supposed to consider a contrast that the author here holds up before your eyes. So if we're going to recognize that the necessary response to God, we're supposed to examine, there's a couple of opposing ideas, arguments in this chapter, and we're supposed to look at them and analyze them. So would you do that with me? Like, what's the contrast? First of all, you need to notice the attitude of this delegation that's sent to, to, to Jesus. And when Will uh, came up and uh, read this portion of Scripture a moment ago, and he read about this delegation that the centurion sends to Jesus, I wonder if anything grabs your attention about the group that the centurion sends? Do you get any detail about this delegation? Maybe what grabbed you was uh, who they were. Verse 3 tells us that they were leading Jews. Isn't that strange? This Roman Gentile centurion sends leading Jews to Jesus. Like, I think the idea is not that they're religious figures. I think it's the idea of civil figures that he sends. That's the first thing. But did you notice what the centurion asked the delegation to do? Or, oh, wait a minute. Did you notice what they actually did? Because the remit for the delegation, it was very straightforward. So the remit was, the centurion says, go to Jesus, appeal to Jesus, get Jesus, ask Jesus to come to my house. But do you know that they, do you notice they did more than that? And they went further? Do you notice this delegation begin to lobby Jesus on behalf of the centurion? They start commending the centurion to Jesus. In fact, if you do this, if you look at verses four and five, maybe, yep, you've got it on the screen there. Do you see here in verse four and five, especially verse five, it's amazing really, I think. Do you notice a couple of reasons why this delegation, these Jews, why they feel that Jesus ought to act? Do you notice? They, they feel that Jesus ought to act. What are the reasons in verse five? You get them yourself. Number one, Jesus ought to act because the centurion loved the nation. That's, that's quite unusual for an occupying force 
even if we think about World War I, World War II, isn't it? That this occupying force would develop real affection for this land that his people have, 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 have conquered. What's the second reason? Like the, the Jews, this delegation with Jesus, that you should act, you ought to act, Jesus. Second reason, because this centurion has helped build the temple. Um, I'll say it to you that centurions were loaded. <laughs> like centurions were hanging with money. Like they got paid, I was reading it, and they were getting paid, what was it, five times as much as a, a normal uh, Roman soldier? Loaded! And so this centurion, you can see what he's done, he's used some of his wealth to try and help the Jews. Now, with all of that together, I'm going to put it to you. Do you see the attitude of the delegation? Like, do you see their, what they're thinking? If you don't, just look at the end of verse 4 there, and you'll see it. Because they come to Jesus, they say, yes, come and heal this man. And then they say this, listen to this for an attitude. They say to Jesus, because the centurion is worthy. He is worthy for you to, have, for you to do this for him. He's worthy. Now, maybe you're visiting uh, us this morning. Maybe you're not, maybe you are. And maybe you think all of this talk of centurions, man, all this talk of synagogues and building synagogues seems a little bit removed from where you are and your life, right? But if you pause on it for a second, what we've just looked at there, is that not actually the thinking of much of the world today? Isn't it like when it comes to the economics of salvation... Or how blessing works. Am I not right in saying that, that many religious people today and many non-religious people, they think just like this delegation and they think in terms of merit. Don't they? Merit. He's worthy. Now that's not going to be in the 21st century Dundee about building synagogues. It isn't. It's not. But the same principle applies, doesn't it? So many people today, maybe even yourself, you've thought like this, that if I can just live through this life and avoid outright evil, <laughs> and if I could just get through this life and occasionally along the way, if I could just be kind to a few people, or if I could look just an occasional act of charity, see in the end, see when I die, blessing. You're like, heaven for me, like there's going to be salvation. Why? Why merit? Why? Because God in the end will consider me worthy. Merit. Now, that is the thinking of much of our world today. But the biggest question you need to wrestle with this morning is, is that right though? Like, is that correct? Is that really how salvation works? Is that how God reckons blessing? And that takes us to the second part of the contrast. Because look with me at verse 6. Look at the attitude of the centurion now. You've seen the attitude of the delegation. Look at the centurion. Look at verse 6. So it's, it's funny almost, isn't it? At this point, the centurion, he stands back, scratches his head, and he, what he does is he sends a second delegation to Jesus, doesn't he? 
Do you notice that? Like this centurion, he's having second thoughts, isn't he, about having Jesus anywhere near his house. But why? Look at verse 6. What does he say about himself? What causes this about faith? Do you look at the language? Do you see the contrast? The centurion says to himself, for I am not worthy. Jesus, don't, don't, don't come into my house, for I am not worthy. I wonder this morning if you see the centurion's attitude. This man, I think, has been granted by the grace of God a correct understanding of his own heart. Here, here's a guy before you in this text who knows that we're, it's pretty easy to kid on the people in our lives, isn't it? It's like really easy to pull the wool over their, their eye and, and, and like for them to think that you're a decent person and a good person. Where he, he reckons it's easy for me to do that. He reckons that before the God who sees everything, before the, the God who knows absolutely everything about him, he recognizes that he is exposed. Like he recognizes how he truly stands before God. That he stands, if God knows everything about him, that he stands dirty and he stands defiled and he stands unworthy of the blessing. Now let me please just reinforce for you what I reckon you already have picked up on. And that's by the way that this section of scripture is constructed. It is not the delegation's attitude, but it is the centurion's attitude that is commended by the Lord Jesus Christ here, isn't it? It's Jesus approves of this attitude here. And so I, I, I want to ask you, if you've come into this church this morning, not professing faith in Jesus Christ, maybe not even with understanding of the gospel, have you come into this place with the same attitude as the centurion over the last number of weeks, over the last number of months? Not just an awareness, not just an awareness that, that hang on, like not everything is good in my heart, but an awareness that, wait a minute, you're exposed before God. That, yeah, you, look, the people in your life, they can think you're decent, they're good. That there's, there being an awareness for you that before God, you are dirty, defiled, that you are unworthy. Then I would say to you this morning, despite your initial thought, you are in the right place today because the message of Christianity is good news for you. If you've come in with a sense of guilt and unworthiness, the gospel is a message of good news for you. Because what Jesus Christ says, the Son of God, earlier on in this book is this. Jesus says, I have not come to call the righteous, but I've come to call sinners to repentance. This is the right place for you. The gospel is the message for you. So we started out, what were we doing? We started out saying that we'd see here something of the necessary attitude before God to receive the salvation that Christ has bought. And then we saw in this centurion, remarkable humility and honesty, I am not worthy. Hang on though, is that all? Is that everything that's necessary to receive salvation from God? Is it just about us being humble and recognizing our unworthiness, our, our sinfulness? Is that it? Well, well, no. And that takes us to where we close 
and the main point of the text. And we see thirdly, an exercise of faith. There's the word, an exercise of faith. So do this. Look to verse 7 with me, please. And consider the second delegation and what the centurion has relayed. You see it there? (laughs) I hope that everybody sees how amazing these words are. And I hope if you don't, you will in a minute. So the centurion has sent the second delegation. He said, like, don't come, I'm not worthy. And listen to what the centurion says. He says, don't come, but say the word. And let my servant be here. Does everybody see how amazing this is? Like we're dealing with a, a Roman Gentile centurion. Now, listen, this guy most likely has never met Jesus. Like, there's no indication in the text, I don't think, that he does meet Jesus. I'm going to suggest that this guy has never even seen, he's never even clapped eyes on Jesus. And yet, what is he saying here? Like, what is his belief? He believes not only does Jesus possess power to heal his servant fully, who's at death's door, but this guy believes that Jesus can do that without even being physically present. (laughs) Just say the word, Jesus. Just will it and it will be done. Coming from him. Let's be ever so careful. Uh, Are we saying that this Roman centurion has a fully formed Christology? Does this Roman centurion know everything there is to know about why Jesus came and who Jesus is? No. But you know, there is one thing that we can absolutely affirm and it's this. This Roman centurion, he believes and he trusts in the full divine authority of Jesus of Nazareth, the authority of Jesus of Nazareth. See, I wonder if you have ever studied anything to do with the Roman Empire. Maybe some of the younger people in the room have. It's a common thing in school, isn't it, to study the Roman Empire. Maybe you've read a book or two about Roman soldiers in your time. Even if you haven't, you know this, right? Roman soldiers were not like the children in our families, were they? The Roman soldiers weren't like the kids in our extended families, right? Like, we know that. What do you do? What happens if you ask your nephew to do something? What happens if you ask your niece to do something? Or even it can be our own kids, if we're honest. But let's pretend it's not. Okay, you ask your nephew or your niece to do something, what you'll get is probably a roll of the eyes, okay? You'll get a huff. If they do what you've asked them to do, there will be a moan or a complaint or a tut, won't there? Isn't that how it is? You understand, of course, that's not what Roman soldiers were like. Rome prided itself in its obedience of its soldiers, I was reading about this this week, and I had to laugh. Such were the penalties for disobedience. Wait for it. Rome wanted their soldiers to be more scared of disobeying an order than of dying on a battlefield. So what does that tell you? If you're a Roman soldier, you obey. Like even if there is the faintest whiff of an order, and you're a Roman soldier, what do you do? You jump to attention, and you do it. You don't touch, you don't roll your eyes, you do it. And in light of that, is it not absolutely amazing to you 
that that is the very illustration that the centurion uses here of the authority and power of Jesus Christ. Did you notice that? He says, Jesus, you say the word. And I know what it's like. I'm a centurion. Like, I say, do it. They do it. I say, go. They go. Do you see? What this Roman centurion understands, what he recognizes, such is the authority of Jesus, the powers of death, the powers of, of illness. They have to, in Jesus' words, jump to attention. They have to immediately obey. Do you see what you have here in the centurion? Faith. You have belief in the full divine authority of Jesus of Nazareth. Now there is your centurion. What about you? I end this sermon in the strangest way of all. Because I want you just to think about Jesus' movement. His movement. Because, okay, how does he respond to this display of faith? He marvels. Jesus is, is surprised. Why, this guy's a Gentile. This is not a Jew. This is not a member of the covenant community. This is faith from the strangest and most unexpected of places. But how does Jesus move? Look at it with me in verse 9. What does he do? Luke records for you what the other parallel accounts do not. And do you notice Jesus responds by turning himself. And he turns to the crowd. Can you picture it? And he turns to the crowd who have gathered to commend the centurion's faith. I'm surely not alone in loving that detail. Doesn't it add color? Don't you see it? Isn't it so vivid? Jesus turns, but I love what somebody else says about it. Listen to this. One author says that in recording Jesus turning to the crowd, what is happening is that Luke is challenging you, the reader of the text. Do you see it? As Jesus turns to the crowd, what we've to understand, St. Peter, is is that here in this text, Jesus is turning to us. And he looks at you, and he points to the centurion. He commends him. But Jesus challenges you, have you followed suit? And so I simply ask you, have you? And here just now, could it be said of you that your faith is in this one? Jesus of Nazareth. Like, I, I wonder, could you answer in the affirmative to the question that I asked Natalie and Pete earlier on? Do you remember the question? How would you respond? Do you profess faith in Jesus Christ as the only Savior of sinners and as your Savior and Lord? What's your answer to that? Do you believe? Because hear me loud and clear. This Jesus he alone is worthy. He alone has merited blessing from his Father, merited eternal life. He's done this by living a spotless, perfect life. What happened then? Another Roman centurion looks to him on the cross as he bears our burden and declares him to be the righteous one. And Jesus Christ then rises 
victorious over death, victorious over sin. He alone is worthy. Do you believe in him? If you came through the doors and the answer was no, do so now. Put your trust in Jesus and know the experience of the servant. Know it for yourself. In Jesus Christ, be healed more. In Jesus Christ, be saved. Friends, let's bow our heads and let's pray.